All right, good morning. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. You know, some mornings are better than others. And some mornings, everything just falls apart. And you know, it kind of started this morning. It's been going okay, so hopefully uh, you don't notice my uh, frazzleness. But um, uh, we got a new internet service. It finally got hooked up this, this week and all that. And so then that, we've got a few glitches we've got to work out. But it all started this morning, about 3 o'clock this morning, when uh, I walk into my bathroom. Uh, uh, yeah, Cheryl uses the master. I use the one across the hall. It just works better that way. And so I walk into my bathroom about 3 o'clock this morning and step into the puddle of something. Yeah, Cheryl's dog. I don't know why it uses my bathroom, but it should use her bathroom. And so that's how the day got started at about 3 this morning. So it's all good. <laughs> so hopefully yours, yours did not go similar. So Romans chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, we're going to finish off this uh, fifth chapter this morning. That's the plan, and uh, we're going to read um, these few verses and then, uh, you know, comment on just a few of them. And so if you do have your Bibles open, I would ask you to follow along and, and uh, see what God's inspired and errant and sufficient word has to say. But the gracious gift is not like the offense, for if by the offense of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses resulting in justification. For if by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And so then as a one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind. So also through the one act of righteousness, the result was justification of life to all mankind. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the offense would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would calm our hearts and our minds, starting with myself, Lord, and that we could just empty it of anything that's distracting us, that anything that is um, hindering us, that's getting in the way of focusing upon you. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would indeed illuminate this text for us. Lord, it's a challenging one, as Romans is, but this one here in particular. And so, Lord, I pray um, that you would speak to us, that we would hear, that we would listen, that we would understand, so that we can be faithful uh, to what you are asking of us. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. One glorious foundation. Paul brings to a close what he started Two and a half chapters ago, all the way back in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through the end of chapter 5, uh, here today, Paul has constructed the foundation of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. As with any large structure, any large building also needs a large and strong foundation. And these two and a half chapters, they're probably the most detailed evidence for faith alone in all of Scripture. And in these last nine verses especially, 
Paul begins his closing remarks with what I called, and started three weeks ago, one bad decision that led to one great correction, and now today, one glorious foundation. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, Paul clearly introduces the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And verse 24 was a key verse in this doctrine. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And in the fourth chapter, Paul uh, calls upon two pillars, two great pillars of the Old Testament. And when he calls upon Abraham and David and how they too were saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And now in these closing verses, Paul mentions Moses, and he calls forth his main witness as to why the doctrine of justification by faith alone is essential to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul here calls Adam as exhibit A to the stand. And if you come to verse 14 and look at verse 14 with me, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness or in the violation as did Adam, who is a type of him who was to come, a type, a foreshadowing of him, speaking of Jesus, who was to come. And so Paul holds forth Abraham or Adam as, uh, as a type foreshadowing the coming Jesus, foreshadowing the coming Christ. And we know how it went. We've been spending some time with that. Adam failed. We know the story quite well in Genesis chapter 3, the failure of Adam. And yet the foundation of justification by faith alone is not built upon Adam. It is laid upon the cornerstone of the one Jesus of the Old Testament who the Old Testament said was to come. All through the Old Testament, the backstory of our new story, the backstory of the Christian faith, all through the Old Testament, it is pointing to that there is a coming Messiah, that someone is coming to set his captives free, to free us from what Adam had started, had initiated. And so in 1 Peter, you can turn here if you like, in 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I just want to read a couple verses here. Uh, Peter is quoting Isaiah from Isaiah 28, and and I was going to go read that and then jump over here, but um, I think this will suffice for us this morning in 1 Peter 2, verse 6 and 8. Uh, But for your future study, you can write down Isaiah 28 if you want to cross-reference that. But in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, Peter has this to say, for this is contained in Scripture. Of course, he's referring to the Old Testament. This is contained in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in him, as we know is now as Jesus, the one who believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for the unbelievers, a stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled, they have taken an offense because of their disobedient to the word, and this also they were they were also appointed to this. 
And so what we see Peter is saying here, that this, this stone that has been prophesied, that has been spoken to in the Old Testament in Isaiah, this, that the foundation is built upon, and that I'm calling the foundation of justification by faith alone, is, is built upon, is built upon this Jesus, and there are those who have rejected this Jesus. There are those who have rejected this Jesus. And so Paul's argument here in Romans 5, 21, or, or verse 12, all the way through 21, is also uh, hinged upon, or it also presupposes the historicity of Adam and Eve, right? And so it's built upon, Paul is building his case upon the rock upon Jesus, one. And then the second is also based upon the actual and the real Adam and Eve, that they were two physical people. If Adam and Eve were not real people, the whole argument here would fall apart. The whole argument that Paul is making, his whole case in court, if you will, would completely fall apart if Adam and Eve were not real people. And some do deny the historical Adam and Eve. And I don't know how they can reconcile that with, with, with upholding the New Testament if they deny the physical flesh and blood of Adam and Eve. It has been said that the Old, Old Testament is the backstory of the New Testament. And this is obviously true. Obvious truth. And, and as you all know by now, and I get critiqued for this, and probably right, rightly so, very seldom do, me, do you find me preaching from the Old Testament. I quote it often. And some, maybe for this reason, and maybe for some others who know me really well, may think that I'm, in the, I'm on the path to unhitching from the Old Testament. Well, that is certainly not true at all. And though I want to say something that may be a bit startling, because I found the past to be startling, but I do elevate the New Testament over the Old. And I know that it's still the inspired, the inerrant Word of God, but I do elevate it just a little bit. Now think about this. Think about this. Let's say there was no New Testament. None. We never had the Old Testament. New Testament. Could we get to Jesus through the Old Testament alone? No, we can't. We can now because we have the New Testament. But as these, as, as the people of old, and as the Jewish people to this day deny the New Testament, they cannot get to Jesus without the New Testament. If we had the New Testament only, and we didn't have the Old Testament, could we get to Jesus? Yes. Absolutely, we could. There's just a lot we wouldn't know. Think about this. Often we hear about Satan. Who, who is Satan? Where did Satan come from? Was he created? Or what about the angels of Satan? Uh, where did they all come from? We don't really know. Because the, the, the Old Testament, the, 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 the Bible, if you will, doesn't start with them. There's just a piece of history that is referenced off and on throughout the biblical text. But we don't really know their origin. We know that God created all things. And so evidently, somehow they came through that, and they were fallen angels. But how that all happened, we're not 100% sure. We can only speculate upon some of those things. But that's how it would be without the Old Testament and Jesus. If we didn't have the Old Testament, we wouldn't know the backstory of Jesus. We would know Jesus as the Messiah, but there's so much that we would not know. The Old Testament has so much to offer us when it comes to the backstory of the new story, when it comes to the backstory of the Old Testament. There's so much that we wouldn't, wouldn't know if we didn't have it. And we have to use it, and we do go to it, and we do point to it, because we know that all the New Testament writers did, as Paul does right here, when he's calling forth Adam and Eve as, as, as witnesses in this state 
that we find ourselves in this fallen state that we find ourselves in. But God's redemption story, which is what the Bible is, right? It starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, obviously, in the beginning, right? And the first two chapters gives us a general overview of the creation, right? And then right away, the third chapter in, we have the story of Adam and Eve. <laughs> in God's divine providence and God's, I don't know why he chose to do it this way. There's a lot that I would like to know that's in that space. But he jumps right into the story of Adam and Eve. And if Adam and Eve, uh, they're not mythical people. They are very real. If Adam and Eve were not flesh and blood, we would have no confidence. I'm spending a lot of time. If Adam and Eve were not real, we would have no confidence in any of the New Testament because Paul is referencing the Old Testament. And if they were not real, and then Paul is calling them forth, especially here as a witness, then how could we have any confidence in the New Testament? How could we have any confidence that there was ever such a man, that there was ever such a person as Jesus? So we must have all of the text for the story and use that, that of what we have. The New Testament believes they were real. Paul believes they were real, of course, as a writer of the Old Testament. And we must also. And so that's kind of maybe a footnote for, for sometimes you hear, well, are these people real? Are these people not real? And, and, and I don't get into a lot of those weeds outside of, well, the New Testament believes they were real, so we must also believe that they were real. And so before we get started into our main text here for this morning, I do want to go back, since I went off the rails a little bit last Sunday and I didn't get anything covered that I wanted to cover, um, so I just want to go back a little bit and touch on verses 15, 16, and 17 just very briefly, and then we'll get this thing wrapped up, this fifth chapter wrapped up, and, and next week, starting out in chapter 6 with the sanctification of believers. And so in verse uh, 15, we have comparisons that is happening here, right? And so in the 15th verse, we've got the comparison of death and grace, of death and grace. If you look at the 15th chapter, Paul is saying here, but the gracious gift is not like the offense. And so it's not like the offense. Of course, the, the, the gracious gift is pulling forward of everything that has come before, starting in chapter 3, verse 21, but especially in chapter 5, verse 6, pulling all that forward. And now it's coming uh, 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 to a conclusion here that this precious gift, he's saying here, that this gracious gift is not like the offense. The offense um, your Bible may say something like trespass or, trust, or transgressions, or if you got the NLT, I think it says sin, uh, that type of thing. But offense is just they, they went down a wrong path. They veered off course is what it means. They chose to deviate. And it says that many died. And what do you make sense of that? Because we know that all died because of, because of the sin of Adam. And, and the many dies, I, many do indeed die spiritually, but all die Physically, and Paul is is using a little bit of a of, of a of a communication device here, if you will, a literary device here, as we're going to see as we continue through this text. But but the many died; it can be taken as obviously all die physically, but many have died also and do die spiritually. He toggles back and forth between these two, but much more does he say? Did grace overflow to many? Yes, all die physically, and yes. Some die uh, spiritually, but much more. He's an uh, argument from the lesser to the greater. 
but much more did grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. You see, there's two types of grace. We have the, we have the, the common grace, right, that everyone receives. Everyone can enjoy the rainbow of the morning. Everyone can enjoy the night stars. Everyone can enjoy the sunshine and the rain. Everyone can enjoy these, these common grace. But there's only those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that actually have the sanctifying or the saving grace. And that's what Paul is saying here. That yes, we have this one issue, this, this offense that's been put upon us, and therefore we will die spiritually. But much more do we have that, um, that, that, that saving grace from Jesus that overflows to many. And in the 16th verse, we got the comparison of condemnation of, and justification. Condemnation and justification. Paul is saying here that, that on one hand in verse 16, on, on one hand, there, there's the offense. There's the, uh, 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 it's just, it, they took one bite of fruit. And for that, they were condemned. One bite of fruit, that was it. And for that, they were condemned. But on the other hand, Paul says, Grace through many offenses. And although we have done certainly more than take one bite of, fruit, a bite of fruit, still we have the grace of God. And this is what he's, he's comparing here as he's building to bring his uh, closing arguments here in verse 18. But he's putting these two and comparing them. And the third thing that he's comparing is the reign of death and the reign of life. He's saying there is a reign of death and there is a reign of life. And life is a, is a theme through these last few verses in the 17th verse here. And then also in the 18th verse, it says justification of life. And then he ends this, this chapter with the righteousness to eternal life. And so it is about death and life, right? It's about, Deuter it's about uh, Deuteronomy, I think, and Jeremiah, both saying that we can choose life or death. It is before us, right? And Paul is saying here, how that can uh, be done. But I want to get to these last four verses here this morning in chapter 5. And in these last four verses here, I've just titled them, I should have just titled them as, as the summation, the explanation, and then the culmination. Because that's exactly what Paul is doing. He's got this summation. He's wrapping up his case, if you will. He's wrapping up um, the reason why he teaches justification by faith alone. And then he's going to have an explanation of that. And then finally, he is going to definitely just, just finish it. It'll come to a culmination. And so starting there in verse uh, 18. In verse 18, he starts with the so then. And the, and the so then is, is our key to Paul is on his way to summing things up. And in the very stylistic manner so typical to Paul, in a systematic way that that gives you the impression that you are indeed sitting in a courtroom listening to the closing arguments. Paul wraps up what he began all the way back in the third chapter. And he starts out with the so then in verse 18, as through one offense. And the word offense, as I've already mentioned, uh, it, 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 is, uh, it is a veered off course. It is an idea that purposefully I went into a different direction. It is used seven times in these last few verses, and so it is an important word that we must take notice of. And so the offense is, it's something that was purposefully done. It was purposefully, uh, uh, we purposely have chosen another path. And as we talked about Adam, and as we talked about 
uh, Adam purposefully chose, he had the clear instructions from God not to eat of that fruit. And it came time where he had to make a decision, and he did make a decision, and he chose to disobey God. Adam freely chose to disobey God. And that's where sin comes from. It's this word that we often wrestle with. Where does sin come as we think about uh, Satan, as we think about his angels and some of those? Sin comes from within us. When we do what we know is not right, that is sin. It's not something that God created, but God gave us a choice to make a decision. And when we choose wrongly, that is the same thing that happened here with Adam, and that is what we call sin. And this result, the result of this one offense was condemnation. Condemnation is to just judge someone as definitely guilty. Adam was definitely guilty, and he was indeed guilty. But this did not stop with Adam alone. It spread to all mankind that Paul is saying here. All mankind in Romans 3.23, of course, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it didn't stick with Adam. We inherited his bad choice also. And so also, Paul wraps up this verse, through one act of righteousness. It is the, the act of, of clearing someone's transgression, of clearing someone's offense. It is to quit, quit. It is to set someone free, to declare them non-guilty. And the result here was the justification of life. So just as we have been condemned because of what Adam has done, so too we have been declared righteous because of what Christ, what Jesus has done. It's to all mankind. Now, this can be problematic for some and those who, are, those who are universalists, meaning that all will be saved in the end. They point to something like this right here to make their case. They're, of course, incorrect because one of the ways that we study through our Bibles is we must interpret Scripture with Scripture. We cannot take one verse alone and build a doctrine upon it. We must interpret Scripture with Scripture, and we can easily do that, right? You look at John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18, Paul, or John goes on to say that there are some who believe and they are saved, and there are those who are condemned because they do not believe in the only son of God. And so certainly we understand simply from a very popular text that universalism is a false doctrine. We also see it in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no way out through, other than through Jesus. And so what is Paul referencing? What is he saying here when he says to all? He'll do it again uh, in verse 19. And so let's just take a moment and look at it. So in verse 6, 18, he's saying condemnation to all mankind, justification of life to all mankind. Verse 19, disobedience, uh, the many were made si sinners, and through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. He's just flipping it here. It's just, it's just a way of communication in, in 2,000 years ago and how they were very parallel, how they were very consistent in what they, in what they did. And here in verse uh, 19, he's just reversing what he did in verse 18. 
And again, he's toggling back and forth between the physical and the spiritual. And so that's why we need to, it's so important to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And I could spend a lot of time there, but, but I won't. Um, we, can, we can move on from there. Um, but that's one thing that we must understand. When you're presented with what seems to be a contradictory text, and those who just want to pull the text out of its context and not look at the greater context and say, therefore, the Bible can't be trusted, well, we can't do that. We must interpret Scripture with Scripture. And Paul is going to get into the explanation in verse 19. And in verse 19, where uh, Paul says here, for, <clears throat> for as through one man's disobedience, that Adam's disobedience has spread to all mankind. And we know that. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind, because all sinned. Over and over and again, through the biblical text, we see that. That sin is into the world because of Adam's wrong decision, and therefore sin, the penalty for the sin, for sin, was death. And as we talked about last week, focus plus desire equals something, right? And as Adam focused in on that app, on that fruit, and he focused in on that fruit, and he's seen the beauty of it. If you look at what the verse says, there's three things it highlights is that it's good for the it, it's good, it looks like it's good for feet. It was appealing to the eye. And it was desirable to have. And these things captivated their folk or their desire and there they made the incorrect decision rather than focusing on what God had commanded them. God had commanded, death has come into the world. You know, um, this morning, I was also thinking about that a little bit. When you think about sin leads to death, and those who die outside of Christ, the Bible would tell us that they would wind up in, in hell. And then you think about Satan, and you think about the angels, and where does all that come from? And there's a lot of complexity around it all. And you think that Jesus said there in Matthew, said that, you know, uh, the eternal fire, the eternal destruction was created for Satan and his angels. It wasn't even created for us, right? And yet because of Adam, because of the angels that have fallen long before Adam, and then Adam came along, and he made that one decision, and therefore death has entered into the world. But because of the faithfulness of Jesus, see, this is what Paul is saying, because of the faithfulness of Jesus, those who believe in him will be imparted, will have his righteousness imparted to us, imputed to us, I'm sorry, imputed to us, as, we, uh, as he gives us what he can only do, as Adam could certainly not. Philippians 2.8, being found in the appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. You see, again, we see, we see the comparison of Adam, disobedience to the obedience of Jesus. That's the explanation of the summation. Let us now look at 20 and 21 and see the culmination. In the culmination in verse 20, the law came in, the so that, you know, I like to emphasize those so that's because it's going to answer the it's going to answer what came before, right? So the law came in. Well, why did the law come in? Well, the law came in so uh, that the offense would increase. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would the law come in then so that we even sin more, right? Why would the law come in so that we even sin more? That doesn't make sense at all. 
if, we, if we, the law wasn't there, then we wouldn't know sin, and therefore we jump to the conclusion, therefore we then would not be in transgression, would not be in offense. But look back at verse 14. This is exactly what Paul was arguing against because people were saying this very thing. And so if you look at verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. The law didn't come until Moses, and yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why? Because of the sin of Adam. Even without the law, they still died. And death was the penalty, was the price for the disobedience to God. Death reigned from Adam all the way through Moses. And why did the sin come in the world? So that the offense would increase? Yeah. So the offense would increase, but also we knowing and realizing, therefore, therefore the law came to show us why we die. Right? The law came to show us how we have gone against Christ. And in the law, though it condemns us and makes us guilty, it is for that reason that sets the stage for Jesus to pay the penalty of that law. Without the law, we would go on dying and not know why. Look at verse chapter 6. This will be for next week. But chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live live in it. See, the people were saying, okay, Paul, if that's what you're saying, that the, the law came in so that the offense would increase, but sin is increased, grace abounded all the more. You know, obviously, we want to jump to the other side of the ditch, right, and say, well, then we'll just keep on sinning. And there are some who believe that today. They're called hyper-Calvinists and others like that. And they would say that no matter how you live your life, you cannot lose your salvation, which I agree on that. The Bible teaches that but not unconditionally. Those who want to say, well, I believe in Jesus, therefore I can do whatever I want because I, I believe in Jesus. Right? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I do. I have. Therefore, I'm good to go. Well, that in itself obviously flies directly into the, into the face of this right here. And so Paul is saying that no, that's not the case at all. For those who want to hold to that, to the hyper-Calvinistic perspective, that in of itself is reason that we can see that that person is not saved. That's the approach anyone wants to take. That's a person that is not saved. That is a person that is not totally surrendered to Christ. Look at Galatians 3.24. In Galatians 3.24, it tells us that, therefore, the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. It is actually the law that keeps us in the bounds of what God has given us. Outside of the law, we wouldn't know what to do. The law doesn't save us. Law-keeping doesn't save us. But it keeps us on the path. It keeps us to understand and know that without Jesus, it's what the law is pointing towards. It was the guardian told Jesus has come. Outside of Jesus, we would indeed be lost. When you fail, once again, as we all do, right? What Galatians 3.24 is telling us, take it to Jesus. The law leads us to Christ. When we fail, we know we failed because the law tells us we did. And 
And as Paul is telling the Galatian church here, that is what leads us to Christ. You know, those sometimes that you hear that are the greatest sinners, as we would call them, but remind you that Adam took one bite of fruit, and death came in because of that. So I don't know how you want to define greatest sinners, but nonetheless, we do. And so those who are some of the greatest sinners, also sometimes when you see them, when they come to Christ, when God saves them, sovereignly saves them, those people's lives get radical, don't they? I mean, they, they are completely, 100%, evidently sold out for Christ. You can totally see it. Not that those who are not, who maybe have lived a good life, and maybe have all made all the right decisions, not that they aren't, but there's something about a great sinner knowing what has been done on their behalf. Yeah, so the law, the law leads us to Christ. And this is the glorious foundation. That although guilty and helpless in every single way, Jesus has done what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus has done what Adam failed to do. Therefore, Adam is, we have failed. And what Jesus has done, we could not do for ourselves. Jesus was faithful, and his righteousness has indeed been imputed on all those who believe, who follow, and who obey. And listen, if Jesus is your Lord, if Jesus is your Savior, he must also be your master. To say that I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, absolutely necessary, must. But if Jesus is not your master in how you live your life, you might want to question, what is it that you believe about this Jesus that you're talking about? Jesus must be Savior, but Jesus also must be master. We are saved, as Paul spent two and a half chapters, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing that we have done. Therefore, we must be totally and completely and 100% sold out to him. He is our master. We are his doulos. We are his slave. Father, I pray. Lord, I pray that as we bring two and a half chapters to a close, this great doctrine of justification by faith alone Lord, we call it a doctrine, we call it a teaching, we call it a tenet of our faith. But Lord, we call it that because it is rooted and grounded and revealed in your scripture. So I pray, Lord, that as we, as we think on those things, and as we realize how we so often will fail to follow you the way that we should, and that we can so often become very depressed or very disappointed in ourselves, as we should. But, Lord, may it drive us closer and closer and more fully committed and submitted to you. I pray it in the name of Jesus.